10. Mark chapter 10. Now we're going to be 28, uh, 32, 32 through 34. Mark 10, 32 through 34. Just three verses. 32 through 34. But very crucial verses, and that's why I only wanted to do three verses today, because this, this, is, the heart, this is the heart of the gospel that we'll be looking at today. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, give us illumination. Give us help. Oh God, we pray that you would be the one who opens our understanding, opens our eyes. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his, uh, his courage. We thank you, O oh Lord, that, that he was victorious in the task that you called him to. And, and Lord, please give us grace to grow closer, uh, not only in our walk with him, not only closer to each other, Lord, but, but that we would uh, certainly grow closer to you through this to have more appreciation for what you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I know it's been a while, but if you remember where we were a few weeks ago, we were talking about the, the different teachings regarding specifically money, re, regarding wealth, regarding what to do with money, regarding what the Bible teaches about wealth, and, and that was regarding um, the rich young ruler kind of flowed out of that, that teaching on the rich young ruler. And so today, what's going on is so Christ they leave the rich young ruler and they start walking. Verse 32, that's where we are. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now this is very important. This is the first time in Mark that the, the, the word Jerusalem is used as the destination of Jesus. So he's walking towards Jerusalem. That kind of gives us insight um, into, into exactly what's going on as far as where we are in the life of Christ. Again, I know it's been a little complicated. Thank you, Eric, by the way, for preaching through Jonah. So I know it's hard sometimes to go back and forth in your heads, but if you remember, I mean, when Christ is when Christ is going around and he's doing miracles and he's healing people and he's he's teaching and he's doing things, there's a destination that he has in mind, namely Jerusalem, namely the cross. And that's what we're seeing today. There's three times in Mark that Christ predicts what's going to happen to him. There's three times. This is the third and last and most detailed prophecy of, of, of Christ whenever he's saying, okay guys, this is what's going to happen to me. So that's what you're having here. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, behold, we're going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So here he is giving a very explicit, explicit prediction of what's to happen to him. Now, you remember the first two times this took place? Remember the first time he said it? And then Peter took him aside and rebuked him for saying that he was going to go and suffer and die. And Peter says, this, this, can't, this can't happen to you. And Jesus, that's when he said, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter for doing that. Uh, we saw John do the same thing. John, uh, James and John, after he says... Uh, the second prediction, they, they, they're the ones who, who take him aside, and, and they're confused by that. And so this is the third time, and, and, and here's the thing about really the whole chapter, just to kind of catch us up to speed. So this chapter specifically has a lot to do with the ethics as far as what it means to live out the Christian life, what it means to, to you know, what, what does it mean for marriage? We talked about divorce. What's it mean as far as our children go? Are the children part of the kingdom of God? What does that mean if they're part of the children of God? How do we think of our children? We saw, again, regarding the rich young ruler. We're talking about wealth. We're talking at one point about outsiders. What do we, what do, we do with people that are not like us 
in every doctrinal point. And so all these things are about the life of Christ, what it means to follow Jesus. Same thing with today. It's, it's really, it's an extension of that. Okay, so if Christ is going to go to Jerusalem, if Christ is going to do this, what does that mean for us? And that's what we're going to look at. So here's, um, here's verse 32. So it says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And you see the phrase on the road there, and you just read through it. And some of the, I mean, you know, the beauty of, of doing verse by verse expository preaching is that when you go through this, you're, you're taking, I mean, you're taking every single word here and you're dissecting it, right? And you're saying, okay, because we know that the Holy Spirit has written the scriptures very explicitly, very precisely. The Puritans talked about how God is a God of precision. He doesn't just give you a word that, that has no meaning, that has no value. So every single phrase, every word in the scriptures, it means something, there's relevance there, it's something that you can, you can, you can kind of just plumb the depths of and, and, and see, see what happens. The phrase on the road, you might have in your translation on the way. You see that verse 32, they were on the road or on the way. If you remember in, in Acts, the people that follow Christ are known as the way. Okay, not to be confused with the cult, right? But they're called is on the way. So here's the thing. This is where that phrase comes from, on the road or on the way. Because what are the, what's that implying? Well, when you're talking about this, this, this passage of Scripture, you're talking about this is... This is, it's, it's bracketed, if, I mean, if we had time, I guess we do, right, Dan Zeiss? We always have more time. All right, chapter 8, this, this portion on the way is, it begins by Christ healing a blind man. And he heals the blind man, and after that, that's when Christ begins to walk, and he's on the road now. This section is going to end in chapter 10, verse 46. Look at verse 46 of chapter 10. This is when this section, as far as the way when Christ is on the way, this is when it, when it ends. And what happens, verse 46 through 52, it's, a, it's about a man whose name is Bartimaeus, and he's blind. The section on the road begins by Christ healing a blind man. It ends by Christ healing a blind man. There's only two healings in the Gospel of Mark where Christ heals blind men. It's before he begins on the road or on the way, and at the end when he's on the road and on the way. What is that telling us? This is, in, in a sense, it's like a big, giant parable regarding blind people. Who are the blind people? The disciples are the blind people. So the disciples are, are going and they're trying to figure things out. And we will, you will see what I'm saying when we get to Bartimaeus. And it's really neat when we, start, when we start moving in that direction. But the point is, is this, okay? When it says that he's on the road or he's on the way going up to Jerusalem, what is he doing? He's leading people. He's leading who? Namely the disciples. And then we can, of course, extend that out. And he's saying, okay, we also see Christ as, as our leader, as our captain. So, so this is no, it's, it's not, you know, and it, I get it, you can read too much into that, but that is what Mark is doing, as, as we'll see when we get to Bartimaeus. He is most definitely setting this up. He's bracketing this entire section. You've heard of the Mark sandwich, where, you, you, you know, he has, he has A, B, A, and he squeezes things in between there, and that's what he's doing here, as we'll see. But here's, here's what you have. You have Christ who's leading the way. Notice, notice this, okay, when you're talking about Christ, and, and these are things where you're like, yeah, I know this, but just ponder this for a second, okay? Who made Christ go to the cross? Who forced Christ to do this? Who made it? Who twisted his arm? Who kicked him out of heaven and made him take on flesh and made him go to Jerusalem and made him, and, and like John Owen says, be humiliated, condescending from the very... He's cond he condescends um, as far as his nature goes, from the very beginning, from the time he takes on flesh, because he was in glory, he was exalted, people were, were angels were worshiping him. So the moment he takes on flesh, he is now in a state of condescension. 
He has lowered Himself. He has humbled Himself. Who made Him do that? And we all know the answer, right? It's a trick question. Nobody made Him do that. That's the point. Sometimes people talk about the cross as divine child abuse. Have you all heard that? Oh, it's child abuse. The Father made Christ. Nobody made Christ do this. Remember Christ says, if I, you, you, don't, you don't take my life. I lay down my own life and I can take up my own life. Nobody's making me do this. I'm doing this because I want to do this. And why does he want to do this? Philippians 2 tells us why he wants to do this. Philippians 2 says this. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it tells us before that, although he existed in the form of God, did not re- he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, or a thing to be utilized, a thing to be taken advantage of. A thing to say, you know what, I'm God, I'm not doing that. He intentionally, willingly, voluntarily, what does he do? He takes on flesh, and then he doesn't just take on flesh to come and say really beautiful, wonderful, wise things. He takes on flesh to what? To go and die. That's the mission. You see that? Nobody is making him do this. Now, you might be looking at this, and you're saying, yeah, but he's, he's the God-man, right? And as the God-man, he had the advantage of being not just man, but God. It's one thing if just a man goes to the cross. That's hard you got to give him some kudos for that. But now, if you're talking that Christ, now that Christ is the God-man, I mean, it seems like it's not as hard, right? It's not as difficult. The trial's not as, as intense. The emotional, I mean, you can imagine if Christ, as we'll see, he's read the Old Testament. We know that. He knows what's going to, he's telling these guys what's going to happen to him. He knows what's going to happen to him. But here's the thing, right? When you're asking yourself, okay, what is driving Christ to do this? So often, I think in our minds, we can say, well, it's, of course he's going to do this. He's God. But then you've got to stop and ask yourself, okay, when you actually investigate what Christ says emotionally, uh, analyze his mind, what is going on in his mind as he approaches the cross. Thankfully, we don't have to resort to like some kind of pseudo-psychology or something to do that. We have the words of God. Christ himself tells us, John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled. That's what he says. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. He says, no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. But you notice what he says. My soul is troubled. I'm troubled by this. I'm, I'm in anguish by this. Matthew 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's the baptism he's talking about? Same thing that's in the cup. What's in the cup whenever he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he's talking about, Father, let this cup pass from me. What's in the cup? That he's so, you know, let's use the word afraid. He's, he's in a sense, I mean, here's the thing. How can you not say he's afraid? He's terrified. How do we know that? Because the capillaries in his skin are rupturing. It's, 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 a, it's a live emotional response to some, something that is coming in the very near future that's, that's, that's causing this duress in this man, Jesus Christ. And so here, and my point is, is don't think of Christ as some kind of like stoical, non-emotion or a-emotion kind of figure who doesn't feel anything, who's, who's, who doesn't know what's going on. He knows what's going on, and that's why he says, my soul is troubled. That's why he says, how great is my distress. And that's what makes this so remarkable. You see, that? that's what makes Christ, in a sense... The, the, the king of kings. And that's what Philippians says. It, it more or less says that. It says, what does God say? Uh, Paul says that because of this, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're not saying that Christ is not God. He is God. But we're also saying very much so that Christ is also a man who did suffer, who was tempted, who was tired, who did weep. And now, as he goes to the cross, he's very much aware of the fact that as a human being, guess what? I don't really, not not number one, I don't want to really, I mean, in a sense, it, from the human perspective, right? We recoil any time we know that we're about to enter into a situation where, I'm sorry, you're going to, you're going to have nine-inch nails driven through your wrists and through your, your, your ankle bones, right? That's, that's human nature to recoil from that. But it's certainly human nature, and this is the bigger part, when Christ recognizes that when he goes to the cross, what's to take place on the cross? Well, the wrath of God is to fall on him so that it doesn't fall on us. That God is going to crush His Son so that we, in Christ, will never be crushed. Right? That's what He's looking at. And so that's why He's in anguish. That's why He's saying, I am in distress. Well, yeah, you're in distress. The God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who has never been alienated or cut off from God in any way, who has never displeased God, who has always been intimate with the Father for the first time from the beginning of eternity, I mean, if you can even, you know, our minds can't even wrap around that saying. When he goes to the cross for the first time in the, in the, in the history of, of eternity, the Son, now we know that the Father is still pleased with the Son, but the Son is to be judged for our sin on the cross, as though he were the sinner. So yeah, of course he's in distress. But here's the remarkable thing, and this is the point, this is why I want to spend all of this on three verses, because what's going on here is the, the disciples are blind, they are, they're trying to figure out what's going on, but Yahweh is the one, who is this? Yahweh is leading the blind along the path. He's leading his people, just like in the desert. When the people of Israel, they're in the desert, they're, they're, just, they're in the desert, they're, and they're just like the disciples. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're making mistakes, they're sinning, they're selfish. But what do you have? You have Yahweh going before them in a pillar of light, Yahweh going before them in a pillar of, of, of cloud. You have this, right? God still, he's faithful to his people even when his people are faithless. Here you have Christ. This is, I mean, here's the only way to say it, right? This is courage. It's courage. But here's the thing. There's two types of courage. Now think of this. There's two types of courage. Okay, There's the reflexive type of courage. And to me, all right, if you're just thinking about the two types, you're thinking, okay, this is the reflexive type you think of. Remember years ago in White Settlement in Fort Worth? And that guy goes in there with a the shotgun, he goes into the church, and right, I mean, I think he, he lets out one blast, but once that happens, man, like six guys pop up with their, with their guns and just take the guy out. That's reflexive courage. When you don't prepare for it, it just happens, and instinctively, adrenaline kicks in, boom, you react, and that's that. That's reflexive courage, right? That's a good kind of courage to have. Courage is courage. Courage is good. You don't have any time to think. It's just boom, boom. The other type of courage is when you do have plenty of time to analyze and assess and to think about it. And you have plenty of time to turn back. And you have plenty of time to quit. You have plenty of time to throw in the towel and say, you know what, I've, I'm not doing this. That's, that's another, it's, it's a deliberate facing of the future. A deliberate facing of, of the pain and of the conflict involved. You see it over here, and you're not, you're not there yet, and you, you know that, hey, I can still back out. That's the kind that Christ is dealing with here. You see that? This is not instinctive courage. This is the type of courage where Christ has plenty of time to say, you know what? 
I'm way, I'm way over my head. I don't feel like suffering the wrath of God for these God-hating sinners. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it. That's why this is so remarkable. He doesn't do that. He could, he doesn't. Another word for this is duty. I think this is a very underappreciated uh, phrase in the Christian life, duty. Remember what Christ says, I have come to do the will of God. That was his will. Christ's will was to do the will of God. What should our will be, right? To do the will of God. That's what our will should be. That's what, that's what we should do. That's duty. You know, in the Christian life, we think of sometimes, we're like, man, we, you can't talk about duty, because if you talk about duty, it becomes works righteousness, and you don't want to do that. But there is a real thing in the Christian life called evangelical obedience, right? So as Christians, do we not have duties? You go through the scriptures, there's all kinds of duties. We just read one, when we read Exodus 20, one of the commandments is, is children, obey your parents in the Lord. What does Paul tell children in Ephesians 6, New Testament? Children, Obey your parents and the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, be submissive to your husband. Right? So all these things, we have, there's tons of duties in the scriptures. Now, we know these duties don't save us. That's the, that's the difference. We're not saying that, hey, unless you have these duties, then you're saved. We're not saying that. But as Christians, we do have duties. We have the duty, and this is, this is where, you know, this, this, this whole idea of duty first came to me when the Founders guys asked me to write an article on the duty of evangelism. And I had never thought of evangelism. I mean, I guess in a sense I had. I never really like wrestled with that idea. But they said, hey, can you write it? Because they, they, they were doing like a whole journal on, on, on duty. So they wanted one on the duty of evangelism. And when you start thinking about it, you're like, man, that's a perfect word for evangelism. Why? And it's a perfect word for anything in the Christian life. Is the Christian life easy? We say, well, no, it's not easy, right? And I, Because that's the, that's the answer you're supposed to say. No, it's not easy. But ask yourself this, right? Of course it's not easy. But here's the thing. Why is it not easy? You know why it's not easy? Well, number one, yes, we face persecution. We face people coming against us. And we had a guy in Lubbock get fired from his job because he didn't want to serve as Hooters because he was a Christian, so they fire him. So we do experience external realities and external pressures and trials, right? And so that's tough, and I'm not downplaying any of that. We also experience it's tough because of the devil. We have enemy, we, we, an enemy. We have opposition, right? Spiritual warfare is a very real component to all of this. So that's, yes, that makes it difficult. But there's a third type of difficulty that is all on us, namely our flesh, right? So you have the world, the devil, and our flesh. The flesh thing, we're doing that to ourselves, why is, it, why, is the, why is it so difficult to walk the Christian walk, to, to live as a Christian? Well, it's because, quite frankly, I don't want to deny myself the pleasures that I would otherwise have, the things I would otherwise do. I don't want to, I don't want to deny myself that. And so now you have this, this situation where there is conflict, right? Going back to the duty of evangelism as an example. I am, okay, so look, as a Christian, I know I'm called to evangelize. As a Christian, you're called to evangelize, right? That's the duty that we have, to open our mouths about Christ, to share Christ with others. That's a duty. Okay? Well, what happens when I'm looking at it, and you know how it is, you're now, now you're in a situation, and you're like, man, I remember, I think some of you know Pastor Alan McAllister from Central Baptist. I think you all know. So, so he was telling me that when he was in seminary at Memphis, he said that they were out evangelizing, and there was this guy 
and he was all tattooed up, and they were like in the ghetto of Memphis, and this guy's all tattooed, and you know, like this total gangbanger guy, and, and so here's, here's Alan McAllister, like this little seminary student, you know, and, and they, you know, they're supposed to evangelize, and he looks at this guy, and he's like, Lord, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Because he's, he's like, man, there's no way. I mean, this guy, like, he's, this is a tough dude. He's a mean guy, you know, and he, you know, downtown, ghetto of Memphis, I'm not doing it. But then he knew right away, he's like, no, you know what, I need to, I, I have to do this. That's dumb. What am I talking about? And so he says, he, he went up to him, and, you know, he was expecting this guy to, like, just sock him or something. So he goes up, starts talking to him, you know, about the Lord. And the guy, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. He was like, wow, man, this is so cool. But here's the thing, right? What made that challenging? Well, the flesh did. He didn't want to do it. And I'm using that as an example. Man, that happens to me all the time, you know, where you're like, man, I don't really want to, ah, I don't want to, man, if I, if I open my mouth about Christ in this scenario, you know, they're going to, and, and you start going through your head like, this is what's going to happen when you don't know that's, that that's what's going to happen. And, and that's one example, the duty of evangelism. What about the duty of, you know, when, he, when you're talking about, when you're talking about um, uh, guys, you know, and it's, it's just like, hey, you know, our duty is, is, is not to look lustfully at women, right? Yeah, but come on, man. It's, you know, like I'm, I'm hardwired, and you know all the excuses, right? I'm hardwired to look at women. I'm hardwired. Yeah, but Christ says not to. Yeah, but, I mean, come on. It's, and so what are we doing? We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're making it hard on ourselves. You see that? That's where duty comes in. My flesh recoils, yes, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to certain things that Christ has called us to do. And I'm like, man, I really don't want to. This is against my, what, sinful nature, my Adamic nature, right? But what does my new nature say? What does Christ say? He doesn't say, hey, if you're feeling like evangelize, go and evangelize. If you're feeling like you don't want to lust today, don't look at the... the he doesn't say that, right? He says, hey... You need to evangelize. You need to love your wives. You need, to, you need to submit to your husbands. You need to not look lustfully upon people. Whatever it is, don't lie. Right? We have all these duties. Why are they so challenging? It's our flesh. We don't, want it. we don't want to do it. That's plain and simple what it is. My point is, is this. Here's the beauty of the gospel. What does Christ do? Christ has a duty and you know what? He never, ever, ever wavers from that duty. Not one single time. Not with, now, when it comes to the cross, he doesn't waver, but also when it comes to temptation. How many times when you're tempted, have you stumbled? Have you fallen, right? The Bible, what's the Bible say about Christ? He was tempted in every single way that we've been tempted. But he never sinned. Why did he never sin? Because he came to do the will of his Father. That's why he never sinned. He was so devoted to doing that will. He was so committed to that. He was so in tune with that. So zealous about that, that even when he was tempted, it was, you know what? I, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to go that way. Why? Because I came to do the will of the Father. What is our call as Christians? You see that? What are we called to do? It's no difference for us. or no different for us. We're called, what do we say the chief end of man is? To what? To glorify God. Well, how do you glorify God, Right? You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you look at that, and I grant, and I will be the first one to admit, you're saying, okay, well, I fall far short of that. Of course you do. Amen. That's why we have a Savior. That's why we have a gospel. That's what good news is, right? We're not earning our way to God through this. We're saying out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, out of, out of, out of the fact that Christ has laid down his life for me now, as a response to that, 
out of response to the gift and the grace that Christ has given me, a new heart, a new nature, that he's promised me eternal life with him, what's my response to him? A life of duty to him. You see that? Sometimes in our culture, duty's such a bad word. Duty's not a bad word. Duty's a very good word. It's a very... It's, a, it's, it's the word that the Puritans always use. The, the Puritans always use the word duty. You have a duty. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you're up to it. It doesn't matter you know, what your flesh wants to do. What has Christ called you to do? And here you have Christ as the greatest example of this. God gave him a mission. The son wanted to go through with the mission again voluntarily. And so what does he do? He presses on. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So they're on the road. This is my favorite. This might be one of my favorite parts in the whole Bible. Have you ever just read through this? And, and you're, I mean, I don't know if it's the way that it's always phrased or what, but this next part, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's baffling, it's poetic, it's mysterious. Like, what is going on here? The very next part. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. He's their captain. He's the leader. He's, he's the head of the church. Then it says, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Isn't that nice? What is that about? What is that about? He's on the road. He's not even in Jerusalem yet. Why are they, why are they amazed? Now, we can, we're going to look at this. And Here's the other thing. Why are they fearful? Maybe even more mysterious. What are they fearful of? He hasn't even, has he even told them what's going to happen yet? At least this crowd? No, that doesn't come until 33. You see that? So in verse 32, they're already afraid. What are they afraid of? You know what they're afraid of? Here's, here's what you do when you're in a situation like this. You're like, okay, well, what's going on? Well, first of all, ask yourself, okay, if you were to put yourself in their shoes, they don't have, we know they don't have the New Testament to work from. Okay? They have, what do they have? They have the Old Testament, which is a good, good, right? There's no, you know, we're not... We're not dispensational here, right? There's continuity between the old and the new. That's good. Here's the thing, though. You're looking at this and you're saying, okay, in the Old Testament, what was the response of people, even, um, even angels to a certain extent, what is their response whenever they're in the presence of God? You think of people. They, even when people are in the presence of angels, they're falling all over themselves. It's like they're, they're slobbering, they lose their senses, they're overwhelmed, they don't know what's going on. They're afraid. They're, they're fearful. They're amazed. You see angels. What do angels do in the presence of God? They're covering themselves up. God is holy. God is set apart, even when it comes to angels. He's holy. He's separate even from angels. So here you have this situation when they where, where in the Old Testament, in the presence of God, you have people who are, who are stunned, who are overwhelmed, who are awed. But then, and here's the second part, and we're going to bring all of this together. Look what else it says. Okay, Those who followed were fearful. Now, if you just go through Mark, let's look at chapter 4. We're going to look at four places in the in, in Gospel of Mark. Look at chapter 4, verse 41. What do you have here? They became very much afraid, the disciples, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Remember, so over here in verse 35, there's a storm. They're in the middle of the sea. Verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. A nice reference there from Jonah. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up. So they're afraid, right? And we covered this years ago. They're afraid. They're terrified. But then when they see what Christ does, what happens? He says, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, what does it say? You know what it does not say? It does not say that now that the sea was calm, they were at peace. Everything was cool. Everything was fine now. It says, no, verse 41, and they, they became very much afraid. You see that? They were afraid, and then they became very much afraid after they saw what Christ just did. They're more afraid now of Christ than they were of the storm that was about to destroy them, sink them, and kill them. Now they're realizing, okay, this is different. Chapter 5, verse 15, you have something similar. This is after Christ heals the demoniac. You remember this, the demoniac, he's over here, he's cutting himself, he's shackled up, he breaks the shackles, they try to put ropes on him, he breaks the ropes. He's naked because he's, he's out of his mind, he can't keep his clothes on. So they don't know what to do with him, so he's out in the, with, in the tombs, the unclean area, Christ comes, heals this man, the man is in his right mind, so here's a town who was afraid of this demoniac, who was frightened by this demoniac, didn't know what to do with this guy, terrified by this guy. Christ comes, heals this guy, they come and they look. This guy is clothed, and then he's, he's in his right mind, right? Nothing to be afraid of anymore. Everything's good now, right? Wrong. Look what it says. Verse 15, chapter 5, verse 15. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and what? They became what? Frightened. Not by the, not by the man who had a legion of demons anymore, right? They're more afraid of the Christ who healed the man with the legion of demons than they were when the man had the legion of demons inside of him. That's why they say, you got to leave here, man. They kick Christ out. Chapter 5, verse 33. Remember the lady? She's had a flow of blood for 12 years. She comes, she touches the hem of Christ's garment. He's looking around and she realizes she's healed. He looks around to see the woman who had done this, verse 33, but the woman, what? Fearing and trembling. Fearing and trembling. Why? Not because she's got this flow of blood and she's afraid that it's going to kill her and she doesn't know what to do. She's probably horribly anemic. And so she's terrified, right? She's not afraid of that. She's afraid of this man who when she goes up and touches the hem of his garment, she's actually healed. Now she's fearful. Now she's trembling. And then last one, chapter 6. Verse 50. This is when the disciples, they're on the boat. Christ bids them farewell. He goes, he leaves, he prays, he comes back in the evening. The boat's in the middle of the sea. He sees them straining at the oars. The wind was against them. And then he comes walking on the sea. And in verse 49 it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Verse 51, then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were, what, utterly astonished. See what's going on? It's not, it has nothing to do with Christ going to Jerusalem to die. That's not what they're afraid of. They're not afraid at this point. That's not what that's talking about in Mark at all. Where it says, behold, verse, 30, uh, verse 32, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Now look at that in light of what we just read. And they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. 
You know what this is about? This is about recognizing that Christ is utterly different. There are no categories in the human experience that can explain what Christ is doing, who this person is. We have none. There is none. There's nothing, there's, there's never been anything like this. And they're recognizing this. They don't know how to articulate it, not only with their words, but even mentally. How do you take in what this is? This man who actually calms the sea, the man who walks on water, the man who, who heals this demoniac that was ripping up every chain or every shackle that we try to bring this guy. I mean, they're recognizing this is something utterly beyond any explanation. Supernatural. That's what they're seeing. They're amazed by Christ. And here's the question I have, right? Are we amazed by Christ? See, you can read this with them. You can read what's going on. They were amazed. Are we amazed? How, how often do you find Christians just amazed by Christ? I don't think, I mean, not often, right? And in our own lives, how often, how often are, we just, are we just dumbfounded and amazed by Christ? And we just ponder. You know, sometimes it's almost like you can... I don't know, become, what, ingrained or hardened, I guess, when you just desensitize to what Christ is, to who he is, to what he, what he actually is doing here. But you read the Bible, you know, you read it like a hundred times, and so now the hundred and first time you're reading through it, and you're like, okay, here he is walking on the water, yeah, I remember that. Here he's calming the storm, yeah, okay, I remember that. But just pause and think about that, right? The man is walking on water. The man is healing demoniacs with legions of demons by just saying something. When you're looking at these things, this is why meditating on Christ, reflecting on Christ, spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, not just, not just flying through your, your devotions and checking the box, you know, but actually reflecting on this stuff. And, and, and in a sense, trying to get into the shoes of these guys that, you know, and in the situation... You know, a long time ago, and, and in a sense, you could say almost to try to be a contemporary with Christ at that scene and seeing what's going on here. And then we become more amazed by this Christ. We become fearful even, right? I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, as Christians, do you fear God? Well, yeah, we fear God, right? Do I think God is going to come and obliterate me? Well, I don't, I don't think that because I'm in Christ. Do I think there's... I, I, I'm terrified of God because I'm under his condemnation? No, because the Bible says if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So no. Well, why are you afraid then? Because God is different. God is set apart. God is holy. He's not like anything else in the universe. He's the one that, that is keeping the entire universe intact. I mean, how can you not be in awe of this Christ, right? The Bible says that Christ, even while he's walking around, guess who's sustaining the universe while he's walking around? While he's while he's speaking, while he's talking. Guess who's upholding all things by the word of his power? Christ, the second person of the Trinity. This is, this is what they're catching a glimpse of, and this is, why they're fear, this is why they're fearful. This is why they're amazed. They're recognizing that Yahweh, think of that, man. Yahweh, the God who hung the stars in the sky, is now walking among us, walking the ground that we're walking. We, we just shared a piece of fish with, with, with God himself. See that? And it's like, yeah, that's, you can't even, I mean, it, it defies, it does defy, not logic, but it defies any kind of comprehension. So you're just stunned. And now look what happens. He took the 12 aside. That's important because you have a big crowd and he takes the 12 aside and begins to tell them what was going to happen to him. What's going to happen to him? Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. 
and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to, over to the Gentiles. Now, what's the irony of this? Now, look at this, okay? So all throughout the history of Israel, you had Israel expecting who to come? The Messiah. They're a Messiah. They're re- Redeemer. Now, what are they expecting the Messiah to do when he comes? What are they expecting the Messiah to do? They're expecting the Messiah to come and crush the head of the oppressive Roman army, the Gentiles. That's what they're expecting Christ to do when he comes. Now, here's the irony. Look at what he says here. Okay. Now, first of all, in verse 33, notice he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. All right? That's important. Why is that important? Because our fate, their fate, is enmeshed with his what happens to him is, in a sense, going is most definitely going to affect us, them and us. Christ is our head. This is, in a sense, like the union that we have with Christ. But notice what he says, that the Messiah, that Christ will be delivered over to who? Delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and what? will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here you have the Messiah finally coming to earth, Yahweh in the flesh, coming to deliver his people. And now what are they going to do? They're going to hand him over to their enemies. See the irony of that? So the the irony is this. When the Messiah comes, he's going to wreck the Romans. What happens? The Messiah comes, and they give him to the Romans. See that? So that the Romans can wreck him. What is this about? This is why when we get to passages in Mark 11 all the way through 14, and you start seeing Jesus get real serious about what's going to happen as far as the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the religious system. That's why. This is where that's coming from. Because here is the Messiah who has come, and they're thinking when the Messiah comes, he's going to deliver us from bondage, he's going to deliver us from slavery. And what do they do? They hand the, the Messiah into the slavery of the Roman oppressors, the Gentiles. It's so crazy. I mean, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, now how does Christ, now here's the question, how does Christ know this? And again, we're like, well, he's God, and he is God, and God has given this to him, sure. But also Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53 and others. But he can also read the room. I think there's a lot of this as well. He reads the room. Remember when John the Baptist was taken and beheaded, and then Jesus goes away, and you can tell Jesus recognizes that John's fate, that's going to be my fate pretty soon. And you can just, you sense that he is aware of that. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 10, and they're telling him, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, well, I know that when I go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be bound and everything else. There's there's actually a quote by Plato, and this is why a lot of times Plato the philosopher, the early church especially, they thought that Plato had some kind of like divine insight, biblical insight, because Plato has a few quotes, including one that says something like, uh, he talks about this righteous man who goes and, and he's, he's crucified um, because he's righteous. And the people know that he's righteous. And there's another place where he calls, he talks about a shepherd being crucified. And so, you know, the idea here is this, okay, Christ is able to read the room. He's able to recognize, okay, I can see where all this is going, where all this is leading. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue this mission all the way to the end. And when I mean end, this is what's going to happen. This is what they're going to do to me. But there is a sense in which, yes, this is supernatural. But also, in Isaiah 53, just to run through this, um, what's, what's, I, I think it's fascinating. But here you have, in this, in this passage right here, you have four verbs as far as what's to happen to Christ. They're going to mock him. Look at 33. Um, they will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, will mock him, spit on him, and scourge him, scourge him and kill him. 
They're going to do all these things. Well, every single one of these things are mentioned explicitly, specifically in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, for instance, mentions mocking, spitting. Isaiah 50, again, mentions scourging. Isaiah 53 mentions death. Isaiah um, 40 through 55 mentions Messiah suffering and dying for Israel and the world. So that's where he's coming from. He knows that this is what's going to happen. But here's the last thing. Three days later, what's going to happen? It's going to rise again. That's the point. Is it not? It's not just that he goes to the cross, but that he is raised from the dead. So as as we um, as we wrap up, Dan Zeisen, as we wrap up, here's what you have. Okay, I want to run through four things. Number one, okay. The passion of Jesus, meaning the suffering of Jesus, is not just the machine of circumstances. This is God's will. This is the will of Christ. This is the will of the Son. This is the way that Christ is going to redeem His people from death, from sin, from spiritual exile, however you want to put it. Number two, guess who the true faithful are in Israel? And this is the astonishing thing. The true faithful in Israel are the disciples that are following Christ. They've made a lot of mistakes, and they still don't get the whole picture yet. But they're the true faithful. Why? Because they follow him. They're overwhelmed. They're confused. They're afraid. But they keep following him. That's the, is that not the point of being a Christian? Man, how many times you're overwhelmed, you're confused, you don't have all the answers, you don't know what's going on in life, you feel like you're just drowning, you realize you're a bumbling, spiritual, bankrupt person just like Peter felt and just like Paul felt at times and just like all the disciples felt at times. But what are you supposed to do? You keep going. You just keep following Christ. That's the point. They're the true faithful, not because of them, but because Christ. They just keep following Christ. Man, these guys are like baby, elementary, like, you know, milk Christians. They don't know their left from their right as far as the Christian life goes. But guess who the true faithful are in Israel? Not the Pharisees who got it all figured out. Not the Sadducees who have everything figured out. These guys who are just blindly. I mean, Mark even chose us. These guys are blind as a bat, but what do they do? They're like, man, all we have is Christ. You know what? We're just going to keep going with them. That's all we have. That's the point of all of this. Christ is the one that's leading us. Don't forget that, right? We're not the ones who are leading ourselves. That's crazy. Now, sometimes we try and we know how that ends. Christ is the one who leads us. Christ is the one who brings us into the promised land. Christ is the one who's victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Christ is. So it's not your performance. It's not your duty. It's not how faithful you are in carrying all of this out. We want to be faithful. We want to be dutiful and, and, and consistent and everything else. But we know that's not, that's not what this is about. This is about following Christ. And then lastly... And this is, I mean, it goes along with what we just said. Authentic Christianity is to imitate Christ in suffering and obedience and love. Why do you think of this? Even when it comes to love, man, you know, it's not easy to love people that you love all the time. Y'all get that, right? Even when it comes to loving people you love, that's not easy. When it comes to loving people in the church, that's not easy. But again, it's like, well, why, why do we do it? Certainly, please, surely, not so that you get something out of it, right? Surely it's because you're looking at it and you're saying, well, Christ has loved me when I don't deserve it. So what am I called to do? I'm to love others when they don't deserve it, right? Not to get something out of it. That's what the world does. Suffering is the same thing, right? Look at the suffering that Christ goes through. 
We are to suffer. We are to struggle. We are to be obedient. Why? Because Christ does this, right? Christ does this. For God so loved the world. Look what God does. God so loved the world that He does this. He gives us His Son. We so love God that we do what? We live for God. We live for each other. And when we don't, we turn back to Christ. Christ, help us in this area. Christ, we're struggling with this. Give us grace. And when you're falling all over yourself, you just keep going with Christ. That's the point. It's all about Christ, and that's what He's doing here. He's leading His disciples to suffering, through conflict, but at the end of the day, we know that it's worth it. Why? Because we have a Christ who's victorious. So that's the call. And then we'll see more of this next week as these, um, as James and John are going to come up right after this, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to continue. We're going to see how blind these guys are. It's amazing. So let's pray. Oh Christ, we thank you that you are the the God of the universe. It's, it's hard, impossible at times, oh God, for us to comprehend this, and, and certainly for us to appreciate this. Lord, we pray that you would give us more insight into Christ, into the glories of Christ, into the beauty of Christ, the power of Christ, Lord, that you would give us this sense of awe and wonder and even fear as we consider the God of the universe. Lord, keep us from being, from from just going through the motions when it comes to you. Or certainly, you're much bigger and, and, and more grand than, than that, Lord. And, and, and Lord, we need your help, though. We get so sluggish at times and, and so uh, enmeshed in the world and we get callous spiritually. And so, Lord, please help us. Please knock off the rust and, and anything else that's keeping us from, from just being in awe of you. Pray that you would overwhelm us with a, with a sense of your majesty, your glory. We need that, oh God. We pray for that. We thank you, Christ, that you've laid down your life for your people. We thank you that we have a Christ who not only laid down his life, but that he took it up again. He is risen and is seated at the right hand of Almighty God. Lord, give us grace as we come to the table now, prepare our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. So uh, Matthew, I'm going to look at Matthew 10 right now. This is just.